heroes walk among us. They are in our midst every day. At Heroes in Our Midst, we find them, we celebrate them, and we learn from them. Heroes in Our Midst is a podcast about the power inside the heart, the human behind the story, and the collection of idiosyncrasies that both make us unique and bond us together through a common humanity. Join us as we are inspired, as we learn, and as we are challenged to be better by the heroes in our midst and the stories that they tell. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Heroes in Our Midst. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and today we start a stretch of focusing on Paralympic athletes. Honestly, to call Paralympians heroes just goes together. I mean, just to face life with a disability of any kind already takes a heroic effort that most of us will never understand. But then, to become the best in the world at their chosen sport and the incredible challenges they face to get there, the stories are incredible. Joey Johnson is story number one for us, and he may be one of the most incredible ones in terms of results. Joey is a five-time Paralympian and touted as one of the best wheelchair basketball players ever to have played the sport. He not only competed for Canada in the Paralympics, but he has three gold medals and one silver to his name. So yes, no question, one of the very best. Now, I got to meet Joey in person for our interview, and we sat outside on a beautiful summer afternoon in Manitoba, and he told me how he got started in wheelchair basketball. I was a young kid, and I couldn't get the ball. There was, there was no junior levels, no mini hoops or anything like that, and I couldn't, literally couldn't get the ball up to the hoop. I'm chucking it like a, a baseball one hand, and I thought, this is the stupidest game out there. Why do I want to do this? Um, but I guess it kind of starts back in... 83, 84, uh, I was a very active kid. I loved sports, all sports, but hockey was my sport of choice as a typical Canadian. Um, and, and one summer I started limping and my right foot was turning in. And my parents, I, I just finished a summer hockey camp and my parents had thought that I'd pulled a muscle. And so it, it kind of progressed and was getting worse. And by the end of summer, I remember school starting and we literally lived about a block away from our school. And I was walking there one day and it took me 45 minutes to, to complete the walk. I, I would take a step and stand there talking to one of my friends. My friend was great. He, he actually missed half a school for me. But uh, I got halfway there and like, I can't do it. So I went home in tears, told my mom, doctor's appointments, all that. And it turns out I had a hip disease called leg calf perthes. And it's a bone degenerative disease that affects the, the flow of blood to the head of your femur. And so the bone starts to deteriorate and it causes arthritis later on and stuff. So that, that's kind of how um, I became aware of adaptive sports, I suppose, is yeah, you get a disability. And then I, I really credit my mom as far as I was an active kid and she wanted me to stay active and she went and did all the research and did all the work uh, to find adaptive sports for me. I, I would say I kind of went into a state of depression for a while, I would say. You know, I stayed in my room a lot, read a lot of books. Uh, I didn't want to be around people, but... Um, yeah, she found wheelchair sports, and I started it. And they, the MWSA, Manitoba Wheelchair Sports Association, at the time had a, a really good kids program going on. Every Saturday, you just get together with a bunch of other kids, and, and you play games, British Bulldogs, tag, and they slowly introduce you into team sports and individual sports. And, yeah, so I, I, you name a sport, and I've probably done it adaptively. From tennis, I've done rock climbing, uh, 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 caving, um, you know, racquetball, yeah. <laughs> every football. Wow. So, yeah. 
So, I mean, you're a young boy. I think as a mom, I think a lot of, you know, if parents are listening, they can't imagine that moment when they know that their kid who, of course, especially because you were involved in sport. So now something is potentially going to stop their son from doing this. Now, you proved that wrong for sure. We already know that. But do you remember like the like, I mean, you remember your mom being really proactive, like and, and when you were sort of sad and not doing anything for a while, do you remember your, your parents reaction, your family's reaction? And how did you as a family and maybe you as yourself go from that moment right and that time what turned it around like what got you out of your room and what made that difference <laughs> I would say literally my mom dragging me the, the, the first few awesome. yeah the first few times for, for that junior uh, stuff I was talking about I, I refused I'm like, I don't want to go I don't want to go and she would literally like put me in the car and like no we're gonna go we're gonna at least see what this is about um and then I'd remember it was at uh, Duckworth Center at U of W there and it was sitting on the sidelines and they'd have a chair sitting beside me and I was just sitting in my, my folding chair and I'm like nope I'm not going out there I'm not going out there but I, I think it was because I was so competitive and I see all these other kids out there having a good time and laughing and giggling and I'm like okay I'm gonna try this and I get out there and they're just flying around you know circles around me and that competitiveness in me is like oh, I can't let him do that to me kind of thing <laughs> so you, you kept going and got better at it obviously yeah. So you did a bunch of sports. You said you tried every adaptive sport there is, and I love that. That's that's great. I was going to ask you, uh, what do they what did they call it for you? An adaptive sport is perfect. It's adapted to the ability that you have and whatever the disability or whatever you want to call it, and then you make it happen. It's no longer a disability. It just becomes the sport that you play. I love that. Um, okay, so played every sport. When did basketball like? How did that sort of turn into something that maybe obviously you had a gift for it? D- did that come early? I, I like I said I, I really didn't like basketball at the time because I wasn't good at it and I wasn't used to not being good at something. A lot of games and sports I just came naturally to me. I, I was always a fast runner. I always had great hands. My, my brother and I would go out in the yard and play catch for hours, lobbing the football over the house so you can't see it as it coming down. Um, sledge hockey was actually my my uh, it's pair ice hockey now, but that that was my sport that I fell in love with and, and Manitoba in 1985 we were junior national champs at that and I, I was on the team and I loved every moment of it but our program actually folded for a few years in there and that's how basketball kind of sucked me in uh, we had an executive director at the time and her name was Peggy Hayes at, at Manitoba Wheelchair Sports Association Association and uh, there's a camp being held out in Edmonton and they have an organization out there called the Alberta Northern Lights really really good wheelchair basketball program and she's like I'm gonna send you to this camp in Edmonton and I'm like no no thanks I don't want to go <laughs> and she's like no no you're going and you know the next week I was on a plane out to Edmonton and that's kind of gave me my first taste of competitive basketball at the junior level and yeah I started to fall in love with the game don't you love these people that came and said, no, you don't have an option, man. You're going and doing this. That's incredible. Uh, those are heroes right there. And, and, and that's the thing I'm learning too as I'm chatting with uh, these heroes that walk among us. There are always multiple heroes that have followed and have been part of these paths. Um, so uh, at junior level, obviously, you're, you've already reached success, like you said, in sledge hockey and all of that. Um, so, so lead us to the next steps. How old are you at this point? Well, I would have been about 10. So if, through the ages of about 10 to 14, I just competed... Um, very recreational with our junior team. Uh, the thing with adaptive sports, especially coming from a smaller province, population-wise, like Manitoba, is we don't have large numbers. So to, for us to have a league here in Winnipeg of uh, you know wheelchair basketball league, it's almost unheard of because we just don't have the numbers. Uh, there was a rec program, though, every Monday night, and we'd have uh, four teams involved, and I would do that. So 
from those years, I kind of did that. And it was around 14 where I remember the national team coach came up to me and Team Manitoba, the coach at the time, asked me to compete at men's nationals. And uh, it, that's when things started kind of changing for me, where, I, where my thought process was no more, this isn't just fun. Like, I, I could actually do something pretty cool with this. But I wouldn't say I was still dedicated to it yet. I mean, life, school, friends, everything's kind of there as well. Um, and it was probably, I would say I was about 17 and I went to a camp out in Ottawa and it was for, cause Canada games had just accepted wheelchair basketball as a sport and for the 95 games. And, uh, they had this identification camp to see how many athletes across the country they could actually pull in for this tournament. And it was there that I met a coach from the university of Wisconsin, Whitewater, and they had a wheelchair basketball program down there. And he was like, uh, Oh, what are your future plans? And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to go to U of W, probably. And he, he, his thinking was, that's University of Wisconsin. And he kind of looks at me wide-eyed, like, that's awesome. I'm like, no, no, I'm staying in Winnipeg. <laughs> um, but then he started hounding me. I was getting messages from him probably about once a month for probably six, seven months. And then I stopped hearing from him. And I thought that was kind of weird. And it turns out that he had left the program. And there's a new coach, a, a former player from the university, who happened to be a Canadian by the name of Mike Frogley. And then he started hounding me about once a week, I would say, <laughs> until I agreed to actually go down there and play. Wow, Canada should be thanking all these people along with that hounded you for playing. Uh, now, what kind of player were you back then? Like, were you, I mean, you're a strong guy now, and, and I think you were known on the Canadian team as, you know, one of the big strong guys. But that wasn't always your story, was it? Oh, not at all. When, like I said, when I started, I was eight, nine years old. Yeah. So I, I was a small guy, which I think helped me later on because I learned how to handle the ball. I learned how to push my chair. I, I learned all the skills that are required. I wasn't just labeled as a big guy. I was a guy that was big who could handle the ball, who could shoot outside and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but later in my career, I was definitely known as the big bruiser, the guy who was there to stop the other big guy and yeah. to bang inside the key while everyone else was shooting shots outside. So... So you ended up going and playing university uh, yeah. wheelchair basketball. What was that like? How long were you there? That was life-changing for me. It was at that point where I met a group of peers who had the exact same passion I had. And I remember my first year, I struggled academically because all of a sudden I had access to a gym 24 hours a day. I had access to weights 24 hours a day. <laughs> and I had access to a group of people who wanted to play basketball as much as I did. So academics took a back seat for that for, until, you know, they, well, you're on academic probation. If you want to keep playing, you have to, well, like, oh, okay. So you step up your game academically after that. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's, a, that's not an uncommon story. I think as kids go to university and they get to do what they love, kind of forget about everything else. But you got, obviously got that back on track because you, you kept playing. And uh, how many years were you at the university? How many years were you playing? And then when did national team, like, keep knocking on your door? Well, I hit, went down to Whitewater. It would have been the summer of 94. Mm -hmm. So I was an alternate for the world championships that year for okay. the men's team. So I, I knew I was getting close, but it, it was after my one year at the university that I, I knew that I belonged on, on the team. I was training with some of the best in the world at the time. We had an Australian there who was arguably the best player in the world at the time, and I, I actually got to room with him. And so we, we talked basketball nonstop. We, we played. We trained. You know, everyone else is doing, like, U.S. Thanksgiving kind of thing. We're in the gym training because it's not our holiday, right? Exactly. Um but yeah, it was that that's year, 95 was the year that uh, Canada Games happened. I got to come back to Manitoba and I really got to show the program here how much better I got and how, how I could help lead this program here in Manitoba. Um, 
university. So I, I was in the U.S. I lived there for about nine years because I stayed there for a few couple of years afterwards. And it was after that, it was eight or nine years, I guess. From there, I went to Australia and I got my first professional contract, which is a bit of a funny story. Like the 2000 games, I was win our first gold medal and I'm walking around closing ceremonies and these Aussies are, you have a gold medal, right? They're buying you beers and you're just, it's, it's a good time. <laughs> and I had this guy come up to me and I think, oh, another guy wants to see the medal. So, you know, kind of pulling out. He's like, no, Joey, my name's Ino Okanen. I'm starting up a new team in Wollongong and you're going to be my import player. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> And sure enough, like within a week, he sent me a contract and um, I had a choice. I wasn't quite done my academics at that time, but I was like, you know what? I could take some time off and start going to play. And I did that and I loved it. Amazing. I think this is so cool. And I love these stories because a professional league for wheelchair basketball doesn't happen here. We don't have that anywhere here, you know, and I think that's going to be news to people listening to this podcast going there's professional wheelchair basketball. That must have been such a thrill for you. I mean, at this point, though, that you're talking, you'd been playing. Now you're playing pro. Now this is like this is life for you. And Australia, geez, you're you're living all over the world here. This is like it's so exciting and such. I think this is cool for even like young athletes who are maybe wheelchair basketball or, or something is their sport, and they're going. There's some real possibilities in this sport. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember I was talking to a, a teammate of mine in Whitewater at the time and I was saying how I wanted to go to Australia and I, I wanted to go to Europe and just to see different cultures and stuff like that. But if I could play ball alongside, even better. And he's like, well, you have to do something. You can't just play basketball. And I, it kind of hit me. I was like, really? Like, why not? This is what I want to do. And, you know, it worked out for me. I, I made a living playing ball for quite a long time and uh yeah it it was it's awesome to play it to play a sport that any sport that you would normally be paying money to play and to have it reversed and people pay you to play and to have fans and kids come up and autographs there's no better life uh what what makes a good wheelchair basketball player what what made you so so good do you think and and able to keep playing for so long in, in the pro leagues Oh, good question. <laughs> speed. I, I think to be a good wheelchair basketball, there's three elements you have to have. Either speed, size, and shooting ability. And if you have one of those three, you can be a, a decent ball player. If you have two of the three, you can be a really good ball player. And if you have three of those three, you, you can be world class. And I was lucky that I, I had at least two and a half of the three, I would say. Um, some of the best players in the world, like a Pat Anderson, from one of my teammates, has three out of three. Like He's missing both his legs, so he's got so much speed because he's got no weight under his chair he's tall if he was standing he'd probably be about six five um and, and the guy can shoot from anywhere you know so okay here's something just just dawned on me so someone who plays basketball all the time great player maybe some of the best in the world because we're talking about the best in the world we might as well talk about that you put one of them in a chair what's the biggest difference and what would be the most challenging chair skills 100 oh, yeah. uh, it, it takes a long time like the best example I can use, I, I have a good friend who I went to university with. His name is Eric Barber. And he got one of these, uh, NBC, I think it was, had this special back in the 80s. And it was, you know, meet a legend kind of thing. So he got to play Michael Jordan one-on-one in wheelchair oh. basketball. No way. A- and Eric beat him. But he's like, you know, I got. I think they played to 21. And, and the game got out. He was up like 11 to 2 at one point. And then he said, you could see just the fire in MJ. Like, oh, okay, you know, I'm not going down. And Eric's just this tiny little kid at the time. And uh, I think Eric said he ended up winning like 21 to 18 or something like that. So Michael could shoot. Like he got the ball to an area and he could just post up and shoot. But the key with wheelchair basketball is not letting people move, right? So chair skills by far, that's the, the biggest thing. 
So in training for your sport, you must have done a ton of, did you do a lot of technical stuff just with the chair or was it always with the ball? No, we did a ton of technical stuff with just the chair. Pe- push, pushing technique, turning techniques, uh, tilting, getting up on the one wheel to gain height advantages, uh, hours and hours and hours of doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've seen a picture of you actually tilted and shooting at the same time. You must have wiped out a million times practicing wheelchair basketball. Well, being on the floor is part of training, I would say. <laughs> we actually used to do a drill. I think it might have been Mike Frogley who came up with it. It said, if you can't get up, you can't play. Literally, like if you fall over in your chair and you're not in danger, the ref's not going to stop the game for you. So now, now your team's down one man. So basically, let's train so everyone can get up so we can keep playing here. That's heroic all in itself. The other thing I've the other thing I've wondered about. You guys are banging into each other. Doesn't that hurt your hands? And doesn't that like explain that to me? Yes, for being a non-contact sport, there is a lot of contact involved. Um, the chair is just basically an extension of your body, though. So uh, as an able-bodied basketball, any contact, it, it's ref determining who is initiating, who has position, and that's how it is in wheelchair basketball. But as far as fingers and hands, uh, broken fingers, losing fingernails, not uncommon in wheelchair basketball. Blisters, that's the big thing because you're pushing all the time, stopping. Uh, you tend I don't have them anymore, but I used to have huge calluses on my hands. Eight years later, they've gone away. So <laughs> <laughs> You've softened up a exactly. little bit. For the rest of us, you've come back down to our level. You know, those are some questions I've always wanted to ask. You know, I've watched the Paralympics, and I've often wondered. Let's talk Olympics. 1996 was your first Paralympics, and um, you've been to five. Now, we have to talk about this because that is an uncommon story. Uh, that in itself could be what we just talked about, although I've loved your story so far. Uh, let's talk about your very first Olympic experience, what that was like for you, realizing that you were actually there. And then maybe take us through sort of the Olympics and if something stands out for you or something you want to share with us about what that was like to be a five-time Paralympian and maybe how they differed one from the other. Yeah, well, 96 was the first one, and I would have been 21 uh, by the time the games came around. Um, And I remember it being surreal because, you know, you look up to certain athletes during your time of playing and trying to achieve that goal of getting there. And when it finally came about um, being selected, it, it was very surreal. And then getting to the games, very exciting. My first games, you know, I'll never forget the opening ceremonies there. Coming out into the stadium and and the energy, like that crowd, and you can't duplicate that. And I didn't think you could anyway until um, 2000 came (laughs) and and then it happened. (laughs) Exactly. But you didn't know that in 96. You know, I didn't. And, uh, so, 96 was very exciting because it was my first, but it's also very disappointing because I feel we underachieved a bit. We ended up finishing fifth, and we lost a pool game to Australia that uh, we probably shouldn't have, and they went on to win the gold. And that losing that pool game made us face the U.S. in the quarterfinals, and no one wanted to face the U.S. at that time, very powerful team. Um, but for me, it was a great learning experience because our program was in a huge... Uh, shifting moment at that time a lot of athletes I think we had six rookies on that uh, six out of 12 athletes that were rookies going into uh, the 96 games and then 97 98 going into the world's in 98 we had even more rookies come on so by the time 2000 came around very young very hungry team and, and just a very athletic team and you know 2000 Australia they they really stepped up the, the Paralympic games there were, were huge packed stadiums uh the games themselves were, were phenomenal. I mean, we won. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. And, and as I would have been 25 at those games, and 
to get your first gold medal to, to realize like all the hours of work and it's funny i've talked to my brother about this at times too but people look at athletes and like oh he's got god-given talent oh it's natural talent and i'm like yeah there's an element of truth to that but the reality is this person has spent thousands of hours in a gym to get to that level you don't just walk in as a volleyball player you don't just walk in and naturally have it basketball player hockey player there's and that's the part nobody sees people get to see the games where they display those hours of work and that's kind of what 2000 was for us like we we had busted our butt for a good four years there and, and came through uh 2004 athens w- was very special for me it was uh you know I, I just got married that summer so my wife and her family came out um and then my brother was actually a part of our, our team he was on our men's staff at that time so to get to share something like that with family uh, my sister had come out and watched me in 2000 she was the only family member everyone came down in 96 and then to have my brother there uh, and to win back to back we were the first men's team to win back to back gold medals in decades uh, so that that was pretty cool and then I, I we were talking right before this that i remember a shifting moment in my career and that happened in 2005 the birth of my daughter i was playing professionally over in europe and I had to keep crossing the pond for training camps. And it was getting old. And we were heading to Colorado Springs. And this would have been late November, early December of uh, 2005. And it was to qualify for the World Championships in 2006. And the only thing that really kept me going during that time was we hadn't won a World Championship yet. In 2006 in Amsterdam, we, had, we finally won that. But that was my motivating factor. Um, so heading into 2008, I, I, I really felt I was almost done. Like, I loved playing basketball, but I hated the travel. Like, it, it was starting to wear on me and, and the family time and stuff like that. So the only thing that kept me going in 2008, no men's team had ever three-peated. No team had ever got three gold medals in a row. And that I don't know if that was bad motivation or whatever, because I remember I, I was training one summer in Fergus with Pat Anderson, actually, and my wife from Fergus as well. So we were living there for the summer, and it was just Pat and I going to the gym every day, and he'd swing by and pick me up, and we'd stop by Tim Hortons, and both of us were just kind of grumbling the whole way to the gym, like, what are we doing? I don't want to have to do this anymore. And, you know, we showed up, Beijing, games went fairly well, but there was just this weight amongst the team that wasn't good, and we ended up losing the gold medal game that year to uh, the Aussies. So I, I thought I was done after that one, and uh, we had a coaching change there, and it was actually uh, the new coach, he called me up, I was living in Germany, he called me up, like, Joey, I can't have you step down right now, we've had too many retirements, I need you to stick around, at least for the Worlds, 2010 in Birmingham. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, Jerry, this, <laughs> I'm getting kind of tired of this, and he's like, please, do me a favor, and let, let's, uh, okay, so I stuck around for the world championships in 2010 and we had a crap performance we ended up finishing seventh the worst games i've ever played at kind of thing for the world championships and i'm like well i can't end my career like that (laughs) not going out with a seventh place finish so i'm like i'm sticking around i'm going to london now now london awesome games the the environment there the 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 way they put the games on they educated the public about all kinds of para sports uh my family was there my brother was there obviously coaching the women's team um, so it was very special, and then to get to end my career with a, the last gold medal was the perfect way to, to end my career, I'd say. Yeah. 
You know, it's incredible. And I think people who are, you know, who are listening and even myself, I got to go to an Olympics, one Olympics I went to. And, but even that, even for me, I think, wow, the dedication to keep going back. But you must have, like, what a competitive spirit you had on both sides of the coin. We've won two, we've got to win three. Now we finished seventh. I got to do better. Uh, what do you think? Were you born with that? Was it, you know what I mean? And, and even going through what you went through, some people might say the challenge you faced when you were, what, an eight-year-old boy, your life changing at that moment, uh, you know, all of that. Like, what a spirit. Were you born with that? Did you did you inherit that from someone? Another great question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm born with it or not, but it is something I find in, inside me. And I've talked, I've probably talked to Bill about this, my brother. I remember we were playing at Canadian Nationals once. We were hosting here in Winnipeg and we're playing Alberta. And at that point, we'd never beat Alberta. And we were down by about 11 points with a minute and a half left. And in my head, I'm like, okay, we got this. Now, they're going to miss this free throw. I'm going to get the ball. I'm going to go down, score a three-pointer. I'm going to steal the ball, score another three-pointer. We're only down by five. You know, that's two. And, but that, that, every situation was an opportunity for me to win. And it, that's just how I thought. And it, was, it was never over. And I, the big games that we did lose, I remember, like, the siren going off. I'm like, you know, this can't be it. Like, I, I haven't won yet. Like, it's not over. But maybe I am born with it. I don't know. Maybe it was just having an older brother growing up with him and a younger sister, how competitive we were. And we can share stories on how silly competitive we were from breaking mom and dad's kitchen table because of a a video game. And competitiveness, I I don't know if it's an intrinsic thing or if something that's learned, but I definitely have it. What an amazing story. Wow. So 2012, you win and, and you retired. Okay. So, so tell us then, how did real life set in? I mean, well, you already had a kid. You're already married. So you, you were grabbing some of real life as you were going, as we say, right? Some of us, we waited till that sport was over and then we did the whole marriage kids thing. Uh, you interspersed it. Uh, what happened after 2012? Did things really change for you? I mean, that's a, that's a big, especially after that long of playing. Yeah. Uh, reality sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it really can as high as you can get as a Paralympian and man it's tough to come down yeah um so after 2012 we were still living in Germany at the time and we made the decision to move back to Canada my wife's from southern Ontario I'm from southern Manitoba so we 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 were open to moving anyway we just knew we wanted to be back in Canada to be closer to family um I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to work at a sales job with a company here in Winnipeg called Freedom Concepts they uh make adaptive bikes for kids with disabilities to you know help with mobility issues and they were trying to launch a new hand cycle line so they thought I would be a good fit with that so I, I did that for a few years. As probably in 2015, I, I got a phone call from Mike Frogley at the time, and he said, "Hey, I, I might have an opportunity for you. Uh, would you mind talking to the British High Performance Director for British Wheelchair Basketball?" I'm like, yeah, sure. So he calls me up and he offered me a job as the assistant coach for the British men's team heading into Rio. And it, once again, it was that competitive juice kind of thing. Like I, I was enjoying my sales job, but it was it was still keeping me on the road. I, I, my territory was large. I was covering about a third of North America at the time. So I was traveling a lot anyway, and I'd come home kind of grumpy. And my wife at the time was like, well, if you're going to be gone all the time anyway, you might as well do something that you love. So I committed, and I went to the 2016 Rio Games with the, the British men's team, which, which uh, uh, fantastic experience we ended up finishing third so we we're on the podium and a great group of young kids there that you know looked up to me and I was kind of sharing my wisdom with them I suppose so your wisdom I want to break that down a little bit what do you think you offered that team maybe that was unique to you what do you think you learned about yourself in coaching now after you'd played for so long well I'm pretty laid back as far as coaching goes so what I, I truly believe what I offered these the young kids with the GB program 
was the knowledge of how to win. And I, I do find this happens a lot, especially in high performance sport. When once they people get to a certain level, they get content. Like, yes, I made the Olympic team, but to me, that's not the goal. Making the Olympics isn't good enough for me. It's I want to win the Olympics. I want to be the best out there, you know. And and I could see a lot of it that kind of attitude with some of the older British players, but the younger kids hadn't been touched by that yet. So I really got to work with them and. Unfortunately, I couldn't stay with the program. They wanted me to move to England, and I wasn't ready to do that. So the 2018 World, so the British team ended up winning. They finished first. And I'm not going to take credit for it, but the group of kids I got to work with were the main parts of that. So I take a lot of pride in what they accomplished. Yeah. Well, you know, if you hang around high-level high sports enough, you hear sayings like, you learn to win by winning. And, you know, and really, you won so much. You, there was just, there, were, there was obviously some of that little extra something that you could help them know. And, and maybe that is that little extra push to not be satisfied. Yeah. Really cool where that, where that led you to. Uh, okay, so um, you talked about your daughter. Uh, tell us about your uh, family. Tell us about your family and how has all your time competing, being in basketball, I know you're still involved, but uh, how has that affected how you are uh, as a dad, as a husband, you know, how did that affect you? Yeah, so I have, I have three kids. I have a, a, an older son. He's in university right now and I have a daughter who's 14 and then um, my youngest son is 12. My two little ones were born over in Germany. So and my, my eldest son, I think they got to see a bit of a different world, a different reality. Because in Germany, I, I was captain of the team. I had all kinds of success there. I, I was there for nine seasons. We won eight championships. We won eight German Cups. And we won five European Cups during that time as well. One of the most successful runs ever for a club team over in Europe. And, you know, I, I was, you know, th- there were billboards with my picture on it and stuff in, in, in the town. And we had fans coming up asking for autographs in the streets and stuff like that. So my kids just thought that was normal. So when we moved back to Canada, especially the two little ones, they, they thought it was weird that people didn't know who I was, <laughs> you know, you know? And like walking down the street like, Dad, how come no one's talking to you? I'm like, well, we don't know them, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but what I, I, I love most right now is my daughter plays ringette and my youngest son, he's into hockey. And I just love being a parent that gets to watch sport. So I try not to say too much. Uh, on the drive home, especially my son, he'll always ask me questions, especially stuff about like visualization and all, like how did I prepare for games? And he's only 12. but So I, I share some insight with him like that, but I just love to be a fan and, and watch them play and watch them learn and grow through sport. I, I love sport and I think it's essential for everyone to be a part of it. And yeah, it, it's fun to be a dad that just gets to be a fan. Now, do your kids have a vision of uh, being great athletes at all? So, I mean, their dad was. Have you had conversations like that? And are, do they have any interest in, or do you see sort of an ability there? Well, it's interesting, especially for my son who's a hockey player, because every Canadian's going to the NHL, right? And that's just in. So, yeah, he, he talks about that a lot. But just, I would say in the last year, he started coming around to, well, if that doesn't happen, I'm going to do this and this. Um, my daughter is just a, a social butterfly. She literally does sports for the social aspect of it which is awesome um but she couldn't i don't think care less which sport it was as long as her friends were around with her like we have an knitting class perfect who's gonna be there you know who do i get to talk (laughs) to yeah my youngest son brody he he definitely has a niche and he wants he loves athletics he loves 
uh, he during this COVID break from life here, he taught himself how to do a backflip. So he's standing backflip on the ground. Yeah, so he's got that determination. He's got that perseverance. So I wouldn't be surprised if he went on to do something with sports, what it is, I don't know. Now, you, your wife must be something else. Like, she married you in the midst of your sport, in the midst of you really being married to your sport as well. Some people talk about that way. How did you balance that? How, how do you think that worked for you? I got lucky, I would say, but I would say that um, she kind of knew what she was getting into. Like she knew who I was prior to us settling down kind of thing. And it's not easy. I, she Getting inducted to some of these Hall of Fames, I always bring it up in the speeches that people always say athletes make sacrifices. I don't believe it. I believe athletes make choices. Some aren't easy choices, like to leave home at a young age or whatever. But to me, it's family and friends that make the sacrifices. And, you know, Missy, my wife, she's made a ton of sacrifices. There are some years where I was gone more than I was home. And you live on the road and, and your wife is at home being mom, being dad, being everything, <laughs> holding down the fort, literally. So, yeah, it's, it's not easy. And you know, I, I really appreciate the, all the support and love over the years from them. And uh, what are you doing now? So I don't leave this conversation. People go, oh, well, what, where is he right now? What's he doing? Right now I'm working with the Canadian men's wheelchair basketball team as an assistant coach. So we were preparing for Tokyo, and obviously that's been put on hold. And um, our training center has kind of been shut down. So it's a lot of virtual, <laughs> a lot of meetings, a lot of Zooming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, we have some rapid-fire questions for you. We're going to dive into them, see how you do. What is your favorite sound, Joy? Oh boy, I was joking about this with Adrian actually, and and I said, "Is silence a sound?" <laughs> and but I, I do think that is my favorite, and I say this only because when you're competing in sport, and especially success or failure, there's always so much going on. There's commotion everywhere. Uh, you win a gold medal, everyone's on the court, you're celebrating, you, you go, you party with the guys, and there's so much. I really enjoyed, though, the moments where you can sit back, collect your thoughts, and just reflect. And to me, silence was needed for that. Otherwise, you just got too much going on in my head. What is something that you've struggled with that continues to affect you now that no one would know looking at you? Uh, boy. I, I would say retirement. It's a lot harder than... And, and I know a lot of athletes have talked about this and stuff, but... When that's been your life, and for me, it was literally my life for almost two decades, you know, like 20 years of high performance sport. And, and then to not do that anymore, like my the routines I had uh, daily to yearly to, like I used to live my life by quads. Every four years, I would plan out my life. Um, so it, it's a challenge. And to think of what's next and you know what do I do now it, it it's, hasn't been as easy as I may portray at times this is my own rapid fire question do you think there's a difference for a Paralympian to retire and an Olympian to retire oh I don't know uh, possibly I've never been an Olympian I've only been a Paralympian so <laughs> I can only say that it, it's not easy but I, I mean to be a Paralympian you, you typically have others struggles or obstacles in life that you've had to overcome so I don't know if that's a, a perk or a, a negative because I guess it's all depending on your attitude not look on it describe an ordinary moment <laughs> you've had lots of extraordinary moments do you have an ordinary one M the best ordinary moments I have are when 
my whole family's at home and we're just having a meal together or playing a game together or getting together with my extended family, my brother, my sister, my parents, th- those are the best ordinary moments. And, and something I didn't get a lot of because I, I lived abroad for almost 20 years. So in, in getting to move back here, I thought I would have had more of them, but <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> One piece of advice you'd give to others. Live life to the fullest. Um, never turn away an opportunity like, there's tons of opportunities out there and even if you're you're scared or unsure uh, jump into it and you know things always seem to to work out do you have a favorite quote uh any quote from john wooden i think is brilliant uh the the guy's a genius uh, and uh, there's a list of a hundred things that he said that are absolutely phenomenal so <laughs> google john wooden exactly. right and you'll find something good for you uh what is your favorite failure Oh boy! Probably Beijing, you know. And some would say it's not a failure. You came home with a silver medal, but it, that's the only medal in team sport where you have to lose to get it. So, um, but as I said, that failure kind of drove me, along with some other things, <laughs> to stick around though. And, and I got I got one of the the best highlights of my life in 2012 because of that. And uh, do you have a book that you love and that you would tell people to read? Any John Wooden book. <laughs> He's phenomenal, honestly. All his books are brilliant. Okay, final thing. We're going to end it with um, two or three people who have influenced you and what impact they had in your life. Yeah, I was thinking about this, um, talking to my brother about it, and what I have to say is my parents. Uh, without them, like from the moment I got my hip disease to 2012, they're the ones who my mom didn't even have her driver's license and we lived rural out in Lorette and she had to have to drive through Portage and Maine to get me to the hospital for my physio three times a week so she got her driver's license I guess she should be thanking me but but in order to get me to my to my appointment she did that Um, they were always there like they would drive literally anywhere in North America North America to come watch me play Uh, like I told you they literally dragged me out of the house to get me involved in sport and thanks isn't enough for all that they've done for me you know, amazing. There was there were many moments along the way where they could have just done something totally different. She grabbed your hand and she said, no, you're going. You're doing it. And look where she sent you. Wow. Ooh, that almost makes me emotional. <laughs> but uh, moms and dads are amazing. And if you're blessed enough to have some of the amazing ones, the sky's the limit. Joey Johnson, you are uh, absolutely a hero in our midst. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Joey Johnson of Lorette, Manitoba. He served Team Canada as a Paralympic basketball player for nearly two decades and now is back as a coach. He is an honored member of the Manitoba Basketball Hall of Fame, the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, and shows no signs of slowing down in giving back to the sport he loves and to the young men who, no doubt, dream of following the path he has set out for them. Truly a hero in our midst.